Well, welcome. Everybody happy to be in here rather than out there? Thank you. Uh, about a month ago in our study of the Beatitudes, we, uh, we learned that being pure in heart is really at the heart of the Beatitudes and it's at the heart of the Christian life. And it stands the reason that those who are pure in heart are those who are at peace with God. Uh, and if that is you, you will not rest as long as others around you are not at peace. Why? Because your peace with God through Jesus Christ is an established fact. Romans 5.1 Because it is your goal and you attempt to live at peace with all people. Romans 12.18 Because you pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 14.19 Today we want to move on to Romans 5.9 Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And we're going to address today not only the biblical basis for peacemaking, but the practical how-tos of making peace. Um, this is such an important topic, and there's so much to cover that uh, I intend, Lord willing, to continue this next month. Uh, and these principles of biblical Dispute resolution are vital for all conflicts, large and small, between large corporations, between mom and child. But like any principles from the Bible, they have to be studied, learned, and applied to be any good. Uh, to be bluntly honest, these truths could change your life. And if you really want a peaceable life, this may be a bit more important than the text message from your buddy who's being bored by a sermon in some other church or maybe even here. Um, anytime someone mentions peace, the scoffers and the skeptics come out of the walls, and understandably so. The first thing I want to say is make no mistake about it. The lack of peace or war is a horrible thing. Just ask Chris or Billy Davenport. Everybody prefers peace, but reality is that we have never really had lasting world peace Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be afraid. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, I grew up, as a few of you did, in the Cold War era. Following the Korean War, at which followed the World War II. And that huge conflict ended with the horrific uh, bombing 
of Hiroshima and Nagasaki totally destroying both cities. Uh, and for the better part of 30 years since those wars, we've had relative peace based upon a reassuring concept of mutually assured destruction, which went something like this. If we or the Ruskies drop the bomb, the other will do likewise, and the world will become one big happy ball of flame. So literally our peace was a kind of a Mexican standoff. Um, the one huge exception to that tranquility was the war of my generation in Vietnam, a terribly unpopular war. And that war spawned a multitude of protesters. Uh, some were Christian pacifists. Uh, and those folks generally viewed all war as evil. That gave rise to bumper stickers like Make love, not war. Anybody remember these? Or you can't hug your children with nuclear arms. Or visualize world peace, which brings me to my favorite bumper sticker. I was at a homeschool conference, and you know, homeschoolers were kind of non-traditional folks. And, and I happened to see a, uh, what I used to call a hippie SUV, also known as a VW van. Okay? Except this one was painted solid pea green. Okay? And on the back was a bumper sticker, which told me this guy had a, a sense of humor. It said, visualize world, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, peas. Anybody get it? It was perfect. Well, back to the topic here. The difference between a peace activist, you remember hawks and doves, and uh, a peace nick on the one hand, and a peacemaker on the other, is that the former simply cries out for peace. The latter, the peacemaker, knows what genuine peace is because he follows the prince of peace. The more important peace, without which we can have no larger peace, is peace with God. And it's the only Christians that know that peace. Why? Because followers of Christ, one, have the ability to be filled with joy and peace. You see in Romans 15, we have the duty to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in Ephesians 4. And finally, we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart again. 2 Timothy 2. There's a case in the Bible, and I've called it Iodia versus Syntyche, and it's found in Philippians 4. And there it says, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, the King James uses true yoke fellow. I love that word. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel 
together with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now that's all we know. We don't know what this was about, and it, but it appears that these two godly women had a dispute. And Paul writes subtly, knowing that the Philippian believers will know to what he's referring. But he writes as a peacemaker, urging reconciliation. Why? Because their dispute has interrupted, has made more ineffective their work for the gospel. He calls on others, these yoke fellows, you know, putting two people under the same yoke, the yoke of Christ, laboring in the gospel to assist in bringing them back together to be peacemakers, in effect. Now, this passage was used in my life when I was about to graduate from law school. Relatively young Christian at the time, and I had to wrestle with how to reconcile my faith with my vocation, which was one almost synonymous with conflict. Um, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. When I read a series of convicting rhetorical questions by Paul, uh, this stood out as pretty important to me. Starting there in verse 1, Paul asks, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law against the unrighteous and not before saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits one with another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brother. Now this passage none too subtly suggests that a Christian shouldn't settle his dispute with another Christian in front of unbelievers. And I've advised countless folks who have contacted me about the possibility of going to court to resolve a dispute. And good courts have a, a valid function, and I know many good Christian judges, but I always tell them, uh, if you've got a choice, court should be your last resort. But how do Christians deal with conflict between themselves? Ideally, if a Christian has wronged another believer, does it not make sense for the offender to go 
and make things right on his own initiative. In fact, in Matthew 5, later on, uh, in the Beatitudes, or in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 23, Jesus said, if, you're, if you are presenting your offering before the altar, and there you remember that your brother has anything against you, leave your offering before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. It seems pretty clear to me that peace within the body of Christ is a prerequisite to worship with a full heart, with a pure heart. And what about Christian when a Christian wrongs an unbeliever? No big deal? Well, Jesus continued in verse 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. I say to you truly, you will not come out from there till you have paid the last cent. An unbeliever is probably a little more likely to, uh, to go to court with you. And clearly a mature Christian who has committed a wrong will first recognize that wrong against a believer or an unbeliever, confess it, seek forgiveness from the offended party, and make restitution, make things right. And not just to save his own skin. This is by far the best way to resolve conflict, to bring glory to God, and by the way, to bring the fastest relief from stress and guilt. Uh, in law school, as uh, Sam and Mike well know, the professors give you things called hypos, stands short for hy- you know, hypotheses, and hypotheticals, excuse me. Uh, and so I'm going to give you some hypos today. First one is suppose the Holy Spirit reminds you that you stole something a long time ago. And nobody knows but you. Does that fact mean everything's okay? Does the fact that the victim doesn't know or doesn't remember or wouldn't even care mean that God doesn't care? So, you get convicted and you decide to, you're going to overcome your fear that your victim will think, What took you so long? And you do the right thing. You go to that old friend, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a former employer from whom you stole years earlier, and you explain that you've since become a believer in Christ. You've been convicted to confess and repay what you stole from him with interest. Can you imagine the response? Can you imagine the testimony? Can you imagine the glory given to God? Personal example, uh, I am staring in the face my 40th high school reunion. The last one I went to was my 10th. And uh, at my 10th, as you might expect, I saw an old girlfriend. This was pre-salvation and pre-Christie. 
And I, I started to think about things, and uh, upon returning home, I remembered that I had offended her, I felt, as a jerk. And I've never asked for forgiveness. So, I explained to Christy what I felt like I needed to do, and she gave me her okay. I contacted this woman's husband and said, this is what I'd like to do, and he said, sure, go ahead. And I explained contacted her and explained that I had become a, a believer in Christ Jesus. I felt convicted about what I had done, and I wanted to ask her forgiveness. Well, she was very grateful and very gracious, and uh, she just thought it was, it was neat that somebody would do that, even though she could hardly remember the incident. But uh, uh, she was most touched because she had also become a believer, and she was praying and longing for her husband to come to Christ as well. I don't know what happened to them, but I sure know that I felt a whole lot better. Now, making things right involves recognizing not only what we did, but how far the damage goes. And as that in doing what's necessary to, to reach as far as the ripple effect of my wrong. This can prove tricky, if not impossible. A hypo. Suppose you start, you say something about somebody you think is true, uh, and it's uh, not terribly flattering, and it turns out to be false. It's basically gossip. You have defamed this person, and you've damaged their name. Once you start uh, some gossip, you have no idea how far it's going to go. Maybe especially over the internet. Uh, so to make things right, you may have to not only go to that offended person, but you might have to go to a whole bunch of other folks with the embarrassing confession of your wrong. Uh, lesson. If you want to avoid the significant problem, the embarrassment, don't gossip. Uh, Proverbs tell us, a whisperer separates friends. And where there's no whisperer, contention ceases. A complicating factor that I've seen in uh, almost 30 years of practice is that that in disputes, there, it's almost never the case where one side is purely right and the other side is completely wrong. While one side may well be darker than the other, both sides are usually some shade of gray. And this becomes a problem for some because we tend to focus on the wrong of the other person. It's a distraction. Uh, we tend to balance our guilt with theirs and, and say, well, they're more to blame than me. This is simply Satan's ploy. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, said in Matthew 7, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you, notice, you don't notice the log in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is still in yours? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly 
to take the speck out of your own. A mature peacemaker will focus on his own wrong, even if it's 5% compared to the other 95. And deal with it first. Another hypo. And let's put the shoe on the other foot here. Someone really hurts you deeply. So you start to think of ways to get back. Perhaps you've already struck back in revenge. And you fully expect that person to retaliate against you. And you see them start to walk up to you. And you start thinking in your mind of the words you're going to use to put them in their place. They walk up, bow their head, they look you squarely in the eye, and they say, I was wrong for hurting you. I have to confess an attitude of anger and pride against you. And I want to remove that from my life. I don't deserve it. But it would bless me so much if you'd be willing to find in your heart the ability to forgive me. Would you please? How do you feel? Wind out of your sails, perhaps? Wouldn't you be totally disarmed? My suspicion is that believer or unbeliever, whether it's by the Holy Spirit or just by the conscience that everyone has, that person on the receiving end of that transaction is going to be tempted, if not anxious, to confess their part in the problem as well. If done with a humble spirit, repentant confession is a powerful weapon in peacemaking, whether in the business office or in the home. Another hypo. Let's say a Christian friend commits a serious wrong and does not seek forgiveness, doesn't try to make it right. Well, uh, at this point, there's a problem. There's a breach within the body of Christ. How can that breach be healed? Well, in Matthew 18, we find a system for biblical dispute resolution. And if you want to turn there, uh, it might be helpful because I think this is very, very important. Starting at verse 15, it says, If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Notice, Jesus did not say, go and tell everybody who have nothing to do with the resolution. That's pretty much malicious gossip. He doesn't even advise you to first go to someone who can help you resolve the problem. The first and best method to make peace is to go to the offender, the person who's hurt you, privately. 
Now, if you don't feel like it's any of your business to help your friend see his sin or his blind spot, maybe he didn't offend you, but you're aware that he did something really bad to somebody else. Well, I've got to tell you, you're not really a friend. What would you prefer? For someone to come to you in private and confront you about your blind spot, perhaps making you a little uncomfortable? Or, in the alternative, everybody in town talking about it. Uh, it's always best to solve problems on as low and as private a level as you possibly can. Most people appreciate not having their dirty laundry aired in front of the public, especially others who are not part of the solution. Now, I need to, to add a couple of cautions here. One is that uh, we're not talking about little petty offenses here. Uh, in Proverbs 10, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. We shouldn't get upset about little things. Don't sweat the small stuff. In other words, as believers, mature believers, we should all be a little thick-skinned. Don't take offense easily. On the other hand, I should be very sensitive about my offenses against others. Uh, if another confronts me, it's important to remember that my offense probably looks bigger to them than it does to me. So, what if the offender, when we lovingly and privately confront them about this wrong, they don't listen to us? They brush us off. Well, Verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Okay? If he, this other Christian, does not receive your private exhortation to repent, the goal here in this verse is to involve others who can be part of the solution. Uh, Whenever there's an impasse in a, in a conflict, I will almost always ask, is there anybody that this other party respects and will listen to that we can get involved in resolving this? Galatians 6.1, Paul gives us some, some advice here. says, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted with pride. So, uh, procedurally here, what we want to do is we want to go find one or two others who can go with us, and they should be people that ideally this person will pay attention to. And, if necessary, will restore that person in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. Uh, now, it's possible that when you get these godly witnesses together, 
that his story may come out and the witnesses may be helping you see his side of it and resolving the issue that way. But assuming that they continue to agree with you, these witnesses and you can confirm all the facts, confront the individual in love, and ideally you will have resolved this issue, this dispute within the body, with as little damage to the body of Christ as possible. All right. Now, what if we won't hear you and the witnesses? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whoever, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, my suggestion is, if he's obstinate, he won't listen to you and the witnesses. And perhaps you should go to the leadership of the church. And then it becomes their responsibility to confront the individual. And then we have, if he won't listen to the leadership of the church, then we have the prospect of that nasty thing that we almost never hear anything about called church discipline, sometimes known as excommunication. Sounds harsh. But if done in the spirit of Galatians 6.1, the goal is to help the offender understand the seriousness of his offense, not to harm him. It's kind of like when you correct your child for running out into the street. You're trying to save, not harm. And so hopefully when the church cuts off communication with this individual, they will then become repentant and return to the fold. That's the idea. I have listed uh, there at the bottom of your sheet uh, a website and the name Peacemaker Ministries. This is uh, kind of a special memory for me. It was uh, at that time, at the end of my uh, uh, law school days, uh, when uh, I had to make some decisions. Uh, some of you have heard me refer to my dad in the past, and, and uh, he was a character, as you might expect. Uh, he, uh, my mom was the spiritual anchor of the home. Uh, I'll put it that way. Uh, and my dad made some mistakes. Uh, he came back, and they reconciled. Um, and... Uh, so here I am, uh, I had been in the Marine Corps, and my dad was extremely proud of me. He would write all of his friends about me. He would write my commanding officer and tell them what the great officer I was. All these things, you know, he was always, you know, uh, my, my booster. Although sometimes when I really didn't want him to, but, but he was. He loved me. Uh, and so, uh, nearing graduation, last semester anyway, and uh, dad says, well, you know, he's an attorney practicing in Kansas City, Missouri. I said, he said, why don't you come practice with me? Um, I mean, I didn't have any other offers. Who'd want to hire me except my dad? Uh, but I had this crazy idea. I said, Dad, I'm sorry, but, you know, God has called me to go to Topeka and live with these other folks there and do these things in Topeka. 
Uh, he accepted it, but I knew it hurt him. Uh, around the same time, I was involved with the Christian Legal Society at the law school and read the articles and heard a thing uh, about Christian conciliation. And they were having the, the, the uh, startup conference in Kansas City. Uh, somewhere probably in April or whatever. And, uh, um, and so I asked my dad to do something totally outside his comfort level. I said, would, Dad, would you go to this conference with me? And I was blessed. He said he would go. And I was so proud of my dad. Then he got sick. He had cancer. And he died about a week before my, my finals. You just don't know, do you? Um, so that was the start of Peacemaker Ministries. And it is a very quiet ministry, but it's an essential ministry to the body of Christ. Um, and I would urge you, they have resources, they have, if you just Google Peacemaker Ministries, you, Peacemaker Ministries, uh, you will, you'll find all kinds of stuff that will be helpful in dealing with conflict, large or small. Um, now, to be honest with you, I am personally blessed, extremely blessed, that at Lion and Lamb, we have so much peace. Uh, it's not that we always agree on everything, that there aren't misunderstandings, you know, basically my belief is that misunderstandings are inherent in life. Uh, but I know that among leadership, I feel there's a genuine mutual respect and a willingness to work out any problems, any misunderstandings or disagreements. And that's particularly important to me because I've always had a tendency to create misunderstanding, if not conflict. I am known at times to, as my sergeant in my... Uh, basic training platoon used to say, open my mouth before engaging my brain housing group. Just ask my wife and kids. But they've always been very, very forgiving. But looking larger here, the relative peace that we have at Lion and Lamb uh, may be elusive. Who knows what Satan's trying to do below the surface? What divisions is he trying to create within the body and within our homes? I'm pretty sure that he does not like uh, what we're trying to do with men being men and fathers and being good fathers and being good husbands, being servant leaders, love their spouses and their children enough to die for them, to make peaceful homes. I think he hates that. I think he'll do whatever he can to destroy that. So we should always be learning and practicing the art of peacemaking daily. To wrap things up, what does it take to be a peacemaker? Just some basics here. First, we've already learned, it takes a pure heart. If you try to go in and resolve a conflict without a pure heart, 
your impure motives are going to be discovered immediately. And you'll have no credibility whatsoever. Closely related, a peacemaker, got to be humble. There's little of lasting value that is accomplished in a spirit of pride. Finally, a peacemaker must be completely empty of himself or herself, full of Christ and others-minded. You know somebody like that? I do. If you want to see a godly example of a peacemaker, right back here are Daniel and Nicole Judenay. For those of you... Those of you who just joined us in the last year or, or so, um, you've heard the stories of several of our members going to an orphanage in Haiti and crying and loving kids down there. And uh, the Judenays run that orphanage. Daniel is a pastor who has huge responsibilities around the Port-au-Prince area and throughout Haiti. Uh, and it is their primary goal to make peace between God and children who have nobody, who are essentially at war with themselves, with each other, and with the world. And that's what they have given their lives to. I would urge you, exhort you, to come and hear their passion for orphans tonight at 6.30 at TBC and hear what it's like to make peace in the heart of a child. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all praise and all glory. Lord God, you are the author of peace and you're the only one who can provide stability and cleansing and eternal peace. Lord, help us to understand not just the big concepts, Lord, but how to be peacemakers on a day-in and a day-out basis. Help us to live at peace within our own families, within our own body. And always apply your principles to resolving disputes and misunderstandings. The ugly things that come about as a result of pride and covetousness. Lord, we just pray that you would do the work in our hearts to make us your peacemakers. Thank you, Father, for this body. Thank you for the work of Daniel and Nicole. Thank you, Lord, for the love that we share. And thank you, most of all, for the peace that comes only through knowing Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. In his precious name we pray. Amen.